I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network, soon to be the Close Reads Podcast Network coming up here in a few weeks. Uh, I'm here. I'm David Kern. I'm here with uh, Tim McIntosh. The, uh, are you the OG of Close Reads? One of the OGs of Close Reads, Tim? Oh, yeah. I am one of the OGs. Yeah, um, thank you. And we are we are joined this week by an OG himself, perhaps not an OG of, of um, Close Reads, but an OG himself, Adam Andrews from the Center for Let. Adam, thank you for joining us this week. It's my pleasure. What's an OG? Oh, it's a slang term. It means original gangster. Ah, very good. Original gangster. So Adam must be Adam's a new gangster in G. <laughs> I'll take He's it. In a different hood. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. So we are here to talk about Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Have are you both like before this show? Were you familiar with this story, Adam? Were oh, you yeah. very okay? Yeah, we were talking about that before we went on. Uh, how it's um, something of a staple, I think, of yeah, yeah, American yeah. high school English class reading lists, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And if not, I mean, at least college. Yeah, right. right. Extremely anthologized. So, you know, most people will have probably read it and maybe had some very poor teaching of it. So maybe we can we can remedy that. I found that when I posted this story on the, the list of stories we were going to do during this quote short story unit end quote um i found that there was a lot of wait the lottery why are we doing that so well maybe we can we can um figure out why it is that it is so anthologized and so well known did you uh, we'll, we'll get into some background on the story um shortly but i'm curious adam did you like this story the first time you you read it well, I I think it provides, as I was just telling Tim, one of the most pleasurable chills down the spine <laughs> of any short story in uh, in American literature. I mean, it's for that reason I loved it. I mean, there's uh, one of the things I I was a big short story reader when I was younger, and I was always looking for the ones that had the surprise ending or that were yeah, macabre yeah. or yeah. or you know gr- grotesque or gruesome, and so. I would always search through, you know, Maupassant collections and and Poe. Edgar Allan Poe collections <laughs> yeah. and O. Henry collections. And uh, my favorite ones were the ones where you went, ew, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this definitely meets that criteria for sure. Definitely. <laughs> Sounds like you're a um, somewhat of a stereotypical young male reader. I uh, feel like. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tim I'm and I can probably that. identify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tim, did you like the story the first time you you heard it or read it? Yeah, maybe? same as Adam. I it was really chilling, and I it really unnerved me for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. Like the big one of the big questions for me is why is the story so unnerving? Why is it not? Why do we not just write it off as kind of silliness? You know what I mean? Like oh, this just doesn't happen. But clearly, for a reader 
it really gets under your skin. And I, I think the reasons why it gets under our skin is part of the promise of the story. Mm, yeah. And we'll talk about that. Um, you know, as we go, Hey, before we dive too far into the story, I want to say a quick uh, word of thanks to all of the people who have been supporting close reads through Patreon. Um, this has been our, you know, four week window. We sometimes read from a sponsor or tell you about some friends of ours, such as our friends over at the center for lit. But, um, we just want to say thank you to everyone who has been supporting um, the show. You've made it possible for us to keep adding shows. Coming up on August 15th, we are going to be launching our new All Shakespeare, All the Time show. Uh, it's going to be called The Plays the Thing. Really original, we know, but it seemed to be exactly what we needed for a title. So we're going to be launching The Plays the Thing uh, the week of the 15th. And our first show... Tim, why don't you tell the people what our first play that we're covering is going to be? King Lear, which David, guess what? By sheer coincidence, I'm going to see a public park performance of King Lear in Seattle tonight. Oh, really? So well, that, this is like syncing up really nicely. Yeah. <laughs> now you can remember what it's actually about. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. you and Matt Bianco both requested, uh, Matt Bianco works for us here at Cersei, for those who don't know. You've, most of you have probably heard, heard from him, but you know, so he's the one that doesn't like the banter. Um, but he and you both requested to be on this show. So in, um, for give me three reasons why you love King Lear so much. They have to be like, this has to be like less than 30 seconds. Um, the You're opening really scene. time already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the scene upon the blasted heath and Lear's clown. Mm. All right. So can now, I, can I answer too, David? Yeah, I, think, I was I think just going me, to turn to you and say you okay, have to let Adam answer. Yeah. No, I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt. But I, I love King Lear, and I, I would love to. Um, well, at the very least, listen to that podcast. But, um, uh, I think the reason Lear is great is that, um, Shakespeare's use of symbolism, uh, that that whole motif of eyesight and blindness, uh, pointing mm. us to, um, contemplate, uh how difficult it is to see yourself clearly and the destruction that it can wreak when you don't, I mm. think is one of the most poignant, most powerful uh, things that Shakespeare ever, ever said. And mm. I, for that reason, I think Lear is maybe his best play. Mm. Yeah. Strong words. Hey, maybe I we'll go have, back maybe and we'll forth have to between... have a guest appearance from Adam Andrews. Yeah, maybe we should, <laughs> we, should bring, we should bring Adam blood, on. Wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it worked. Tim, what were you saying? I was going to say, I kind of flip back and forth. I think Hamlet will kind of like always end up being my favorite of his plays, but I kind of flit around between Hamlet and Lear and Coriolanus. I don't know if you guys know Coriolanus. It is such a brilliant and overlooked play. I think it's just so hard to perform. The language is probably his most dense and intricate. So people overlook it. But anyway, of those three, and maybe I'll throw Macbeth in there also. Those are those are my favorites. When you say the words Shakespeare's most dense and intricate language, that is a bar. That is a high bar right there. Right. So it's it the is. most dense thing Shakespeare ever wrote. Not that Shakespeare's terribly dense, but it's definitely intricate. Yes. Um, okay, so we're gonna do King Lear uh starting in the middle of this month. We'll do that for, you know, six weeks. We'll do five weeks of you know, a discussion on each act. And then at the end, we'll do the Q and a episode. And then after that, we're going to jump into much to do about nothing. And then we're going to jump into Henry V. So we're going to kind of have that cycle as long as this, as long as there's enough plays within each uh, kind of 
you know, genre. We're going to do a um, tragedy, a comedy, and a history play uh, in that cycle. And we'll mix it up here and there because there's not as many like history plays as there are tragedies, for example. Um, I don't think, although the history plays, there's actually quite a few. One of them, there's less of. Um, so uh, there's that. And then also starting next week, uh, we are going to be uh, doing a discussion of, uh, we're going to begin our discussion of Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. So we're going to read um, the first, I think, three or four chapters of that. And Heidi and Angelina will be joining me for that discussion. So we've got a lot of stuff going on. We've got a, um, a movie podcast, movie discussion podcast coming out. Um, shortly i'm not gonna give any more details about that but be on the lookout for that and we're also going to start um, having some monthly poetry discussions and in august we're going to be having a discussion about emily dickinson so be on the lookout for that as well all right so that's the the business out of the way thanks again to everybody who is who has been uh, supporting close reads on patreon and because of you supporting it we can add all these shows and do all this extra stuff and our hope is that you will listen along with us you know read along with us where you where you can but also, you know, especially for the Shakespeare stuff um, and the poetry also, we really want to be able to provide resources that people can turn to. You know, if you're, if you're going to teach King Lear Much Ado two years later, we'd still like that to be something that's available to you that you can come back to when you're teaching it. So that's why we're going to go through all the plays and we're going to look at as many essential poets as we can, in addition to all the discussion of great novels that we've been, we've been doing. And then down the line, we're going to be doing... Um, we're going to be doing Great Gatsby towards the end of 2018. And we will be having some special guest appearances on those episodes by Adam Andrews. So um, I, we asked you about that, right? I'm not just dropping that to you. Dropping you in no, there. no, I'm totally yeah. down. That sounds good. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that'll be a great time. That's one of your favorite books, as I recall. So I, I'm it very is indeed. Okay, let's discuss the lottery. Did you know that the lottery was published... Uh, June 26th, 1948 in the New Yorker magazine and that it received such negative response upon first being published <laughs> that they received, um, quote, a torrent of letters inquiring about the story and the most mail the magazine had ever received in response to a work of fiction. Um, people demanded that the um, situation of the story be explained to the extent that Jackson had to write a letter in a future issue in July of that year. Um, well, actually, it was, she wrote it in the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and she had to kind of talk people off, off the ledge, so to speak. Um, there were phone calls. She regularly took home 10 to 12 forwarded letters every day that summer that the New Yorker had to send to her of people that were furious. And they had hundreds of people who canceled their subscriptions to the New Yorker. So people in the 1940s were not happy with this story. So <laughs> That's what's of, known as a literary home run. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A phenomenon. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, there's I want to take this story wherever you all want to take it. Um, I'm, there's all kinds of things we could talk about here, but one of the things that I am very curious about, and I think I want to start here is to try to figure out why there was so much, mm, almost rage is the way mm. it seems to have been described at, at both the New Yorker and Shirley Jackson for the situation and for even the publication of the story. So we can get it. We're going to get into, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll analyze the story, so to speak, and we're going to talk about it in depth, but, but that's a, I'm just, I've been wrestling with why that is, yeah. why that got that kind of response. So either of you jump in right there. Like, is there, did you feel the sort of rage, the disillusionment with it when you read it? 
doesn't sound like it. Tim, what how, what do you think? It bothered me. I don't know that I was enraged that you didn't write a letter to Shirley Jackson. No, I didn't write a letter to the editor. But it it really really affected me when I read. It. I I assume I read it in college. Mm-hmm. So you were like 20, really, 18, 20, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And I. I will make a stab at why I think it provoked such a response. I think the biggest reason is it is number one, it is a completely irrational event. There's no other than kind of like um, the habit, the tradition of the lottery happening in this town and as Jackson writes in other towns, there's no perceptible cause there's not an injustice that's being righted uh, um, yes. I see what you're saying. basically people are pulling um slips of paper out of a box to determine who will be stoned i mean that's the spoiler alert but i, I assume everyone has read the story <laughs> by the time they listen to this podcast i hope so they're pulling slips out of a pay out of a box and randomly assigning death to the person that re- that kind of quote wins the lottery And it's not really clear why. It's not clear at all why. And I think it's really unnerving. And I think it would be additionally unnerving, kind of right on the heels of World War II, this kind of irrational, I would argue, kind of a primal communal response that results in the death of an innocent person. Hmm. The the question of whether of why people canceled their subscriptions has more to do with its publication in the late forties, I think, or at least as much to do with its publication in the late forties as it does with the content of the story. But but on that second point, the content of the story, I think it's it's offensive um, to to civilized human sensibilities. I think Shirley Jackson kind of did that on purpose. She put. Um, kindly old farm families um, obviously have good relationships with each other and love their wives and husbands and gather their children around their feet uh, on the one hand in a situation where they, where they almost casually Mm -hmm. turn on each other and stone each other to death. And the the Mm -hmm. author presents that as if it is a a completely normal occurrence. I mean, at one point the the leaders, they they talk about how the lottery has been going on time immemorial yeah. And the same guy who runs the annual Halloween square dance is also in charge of the lottery. It's as, yeah. it's as common and as well understood and comfortable a thing as can possibly be. And I think the, one of the native, the native responses to that is, um, is to be angry and offended because Jackson has said something fundamentally untrue about me. Mm. I'm a human being yeah. like that. I love my wife. I love my kids. I am uh, have the same sort of human emotions and concerns. And what she's suggesting without even so much as, as raising her voice is that uh, people just like me can casually stone each other to death. Yeah. And I think a re- the response she might be looking for is that, that I would be offended by that. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking as I was reading about, and and then you mentioned that they're just kind of regular old farm people. And that does tie into the 1948 thing, right? Because today, if you're writing this, what do you make it? Regular old people who live in the city? I mean, the point is that you can see yourself, like everything that the people in the story are preoccupied with are the things that everyday people are preoccupied with. So when you see those characters, you you can see yourself. And yes. the, and it's the you right. I think you mentioned the word casual. Was that you or right. um, there's a, 
the 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 degree, especially upon rereading it, once you know how the ending, what happens at the end, the degree to which they are preoccupied with everyday things in the moment before they're about to kill each other, essentially in cold blood, as yeah. a group, or they're going to kill one person for who is who is innocent, is it's chilling. Like they're preoccupied with the things they're gossiping about, right? The 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 um. Uh, where is that? They were, they're telling jokes to each other. Um, they're, they're preoccupied with getting the, you know, even, uh, Mrs. Hutchinson's preoccupied with getting the dishes done, right? She's like, you're not going right. to get me out of there before I get my dishes done. Um, the, the children are, um, are playing in the dust and the girls are gathering together. And Mrs. Summers, they're, they're talking even about um, the box itself, about how it's growing shabby and they need to construct a new one and they're, as if they're right. like as if it's like the christmas tree stand and they're going to light the town's christmas tree yeah there's a there's a, a a psychic dissonance between how casual they are about it and it's not that they're ignoring the lottery like you said they're they're looking at the box and, and wondering whether we ought to uh you know redo it make it new or whatever it, they're not ignoring it they're just um, completely inoculated to the the cruelty and the insane brutality that it represents hmm. tim i think were you going to say something it's I, didn't, I can't see your face obviously but it sounded to my ear like you might be about you might be in the you might have your mouth open waiting for words to come out once someone <laughs> stops talking <laughs> I, I i just rereading this story this week it made me think of um i forgot how close it was to world war ii and it made me think on rereading it about a book um, called Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt. Hmm. And Hannah Arendt is um, Eichmann, one of the kind of architects of the Holocaust on the German side, uh, is arrested and put on trial in Jerusalem. And Hannah Arendt, a political theorist, journalist, is sent to cover the trial. And she covers the trial and she comes out with a book, I think in the early 60s, called Eichmann yeah. in Jerusalem about his trial. And one of the things that she really focuses on was how the Holocaust was perpetrated by very, very normal people. Like people that if they weren't Germans and if we hadn't labeled them, you know, Nazis and thus, thus kind of... Um, from the outset said, we know that they're bad. If you just met these people in everyday life, they would be like you and they'd be like me. And she comes out with this term called the banality of evil. And essentially, and, and her assessment of what went wrong about how the Holocaust could be perpetrated by civilized men and women, how they could put to death 4 million Jews was this kind of phrase, the banality of evil. Um, people just did their duty. They just did what they were told. They just kind of looked the other way. And for Arendt, all you really needed was kind of, to oversimplify, orders from above and a series of people below who were willing to just go along with it. Um, and I think there's something about the lottery that really the banality of evil that, that Arendt mentions, I think that we're seeing that in the lottery. Yeah, I definitely agree. It, it predates um, Arendt's book by 15 years or so, but, but yeah. uh, 
it's the same idea. And I think that's the, um, Arendt got a huge pushback for her book. Yeah. Too. There were people just as offended by her book on Eichmann as were offended by Jackson's short story. And I, I, mm -hmm. I would say for similar reasons, I mean, they they read Arendt's book and say, what are you accusing me of being a, po uh, a potential Nazi? What are you talking about? Right. It's, right. It's, it's necessary that Hitler be a, a monster. He has to be mm -hmm. a insane monster. He has to be different from me fundamentally. Category of a different sort of being than me. Right. And then it, right. You know, that brings comfort to me if I think of him as a different order of being, some sort of yeah. demonic force, not a human being. Yeah, I agree. So do you think, you know, one of the things that is easy to talk about in the story is, what what do we think that Shirley Jackson's trying to say exactly? And is there something deeper or more um, specific that she's trying to say other than, you know, kind of a, this could happen to any of us. People aren't that good. <laughs> um, is there something more specific? We could talk about that. But then I also am curious if you think that some of the ways that she does that are like, she's a little, I don't know if I would say on the nose, but she's very, um, I mean, certainly very purposeful with a lot of the the symbolism, even the things that the names mean, the name she chooses, the time of the year that she chooses, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that it's, I mean, it's obviously skillful, um, but do you think that it's a little bit too... Uh, a little too political or a little yeah, too or even a little bit or something like that? Yeah, but even a little bit too obvious. Well, that's a good question. I, I think that has to do, though, uh, maybe with the genre. I mean, um, there's not a lot of time to be subtle in, in, within the limits of the short story. I mean, if you think about the, the great story, sh short stories you've ever read, uh, they get right to the point and, uh, yeah. you know, are, are a little bit heavy handed, maybe compared to novels that take up the same theme, for example. Right. Yeah. So sure. maybe sure. maybe she can be forgiven due to the, to the constraints of the genre. Yeah. You know. I was just looking as I was looking up something here. I just realized that it was published on June 26th, 1948. And then the story begins on June 27th. So that, right. that'd be, that, I wonder, so you assume that she, at least the editors plan that. So you get, it goes in the, in the New Yorker. And by the time it comes to your mailbox, it might be the day that you're reading it. It's it might today. be June Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that adds to what you were saying earlier, both of you about how it, this is, this could be, you know, you see yourself, even in the setting, like you're like, Oh, you read that. You're like, right. Oh, that's today. Where, where is this happening right now? Is like, right. I, it's almost the, the, the implicit question there. I think so. So earlier, early on the story, she sets the setting for us. Um, it's the morning of June 27th. It's clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers are blossoming profusely and the grass is richly green. Obviously I switched the tense there, but just imagining ourselves, you know, being there. Um, uh -huh. Is this an example of like, this is one of those examples where I'm wondering, is this just, she's getting right to it, the limitations of the story, or is there, is the, even from a craft perspective, is the way that she's presenting the, 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 the setting, the, the date, um, subtle in the right sort of way, or is it a little kind of knocking you over the head, do you think? I think she has such a, such a, she has dynamite waiting for us at the end of the story, mm -hmm. but I think she can afford to be very, very direct. I mean, 
And I think it's good craft. The day your story begins, begins on a day that's like every other day. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the children are in school. Yeah, I love it. I think it's, I mean, rereading it, knowing what awaited me at the end, when she started off on this blissfully sunny day, I said, oh no, I know. <laughs> she's really, she's setting us up. And um, I think it starts wonderfully. I don't find it heavy handed at all. No, it, but it does jump right to the point though. End of the first paragraph, uh, you know, there's only 300 people in this town. The whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. So we yeah. know at the end of paragraph one, this is going to be about scheduling and executing the lottery and then getting back to our lives. That theme is yeah. going to run through the whole thing, that juxtaposition yeah. of our normal, casual, oblivious lives on the one hand, and this lottery, which is some sort of interruption on the other. I also, you know, just from a craft perspective, um, like that you use the word execute there. Um, that was an apt <laughs> word choice. Um, but uh, it, it also creates sort of an expectation for the reader. You know, you kind of are getting the sense, okay, this is going to be, this story most likely is going to be over by noon. You know, we're going right. to be done with the story yeah. by noon in the story. So we know we're not going to be stretched out or dragged across a lot of time. But, you know, June 27th is also right at the beginning of the summer solstice. I actually wonder when the date was for the summer solstice in 1948, mm. now, that, now that we mention it. Mm. But there's, you know, that's the time of, you know, it's an, that's a, in ancient times, that was a pretty... Uh, a lot of sacrifice goes time on of the year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, wh- one of the reasons I asked about the whether things are a little on the nose is because even things like, um, like the name Bobby Martin, you know, there's, there's been a lot of essays written about this. So anybody who's studied it in college, for example, may have may remember some of this, but there's been a lot of writing about the name she chooses for some of these characters because she chooses very purposefully to bring up, you know, there's 300 people there and she only mentions the names of like seven of them. So the name she does choose to mention means something. So like Bobby Martin, Martin, comes from a middle English word, which supposedly signifies um, the idea of an ape. And then Harry Jones is this very common name, but then Dickie Delac- uh, Delacroix, as they pronounce it, means like of the cross. And then Mrs. Delacroix is the mm-hmm. one who picks up the big stone with two hands and leads them all in kind of the charge. Um, mm-hmm. And then you've got Mr. Adams, who's the old man. Um, and then Mrs. Graves in the forefront of the crowd. So she's kind of subverting a lot of these, at least Judeo-Christian ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm wondering if you think that it's in that way, sort of anti, if it's being anti-Christian in a sense. Huh. That's an interesting question. I, I wonder if the... Um... In some of she, those, I haven't heard any writing from her about this, so I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, in, yeah. in some of those name choices, there may be significance that we could speculate on, but the broader implication of the story um, seems to me, which is a, which is really a question about about human nature, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. isn't this story really a commentary on? Look, this is what kind of people men are. Yeah. And, um, they actually, and that's why I think there was so much pushback because she's subtly, maybe not so subtly saying you reader are probably the kind of person 
that would do something like this. Maybe not with your hands, but at least in your heart, Your, your nature is of the kind that would do something like this. And if that's the thrust of the story, then I think it's sort of, it's more consonant with a, with a Christian perspective than than antagonistic. Hmm. There's a writer that Matt Bianco and I really like. He's an, I guess he's be easily, most easily classified as an anthropologist. His name is Rene, his name was Shakespeare. His name was Rene Girard. He was a French Catholic. I think he died two years ago. Um, Rene, I think Rene Girard is brilliant. And I think if he had not read the lottery, he would have read it and said, oh, this is human nature, just kind of like laid bare. And he sees the scapegoat kind of mechanism that's at the heart of this story as really an essential way of understanding the Gospels. And what I mean by that is this. Um, he said, if you look at ancient pagan myths, many of them, there's kind of a pattern that has developed. And he tells the story about, um, a pagan teacher in Ephesus. in I think the four hundreds, um, a, uh, plague has come to Ephesus and this teacher comes to the city and he says, everyone follow me to the amphitheater. They go to the amphitheater and he says, I can relieve your suffering. I can take away this plague, but a sacrifice has to be made. And there happens to be this beggar who's kind of like near the stage where he's speaking through historical accounts of this. And he says, you must stone this man, this beggar. And the people were like, no, we're not going to stone an innocent person who just happens to be in the vicinity. And he said, well, then just, you know, expect the plague to stick with you. And the people realize, well, if we're going to have the plague lifted, we have to attack this man. They attack him. They stone him to death. And then supposedly in Ephesus, the plague is lifted. And what Gerard says is this pattern, you read it all throughout. I mean, Oedipus is sort of a story like this. Oedipus is this kind of scapegoat. He's not guilty in the same way that we think of guilt. It's not a premeditated murder of his father, a premeditated marriage with his mother. He's kind of ignorant, but still he has to take on the role of this scapegoat so that the plague is lifted in Thebes. So Gerard says, you see this happening over and over, but what's different in the Old and New Testament is that in the Old and New Testament, the guilt lies with the community that's doing wrong and the test of, and a single person rises, most easily seen in the prophets, that points out the sin or the evil in the community and the individual is guilty, but the, and the individual names the community's guilt. But he says, when you look at old myths, it's exactly the opposite. It's the community is innocent. They have to find a single scapegoat to kind of like take on their mm. guilt. Mm. So his, his telling of the gospel is, well, this Jesus taking on voluntarily as an innocent one, the guilt of his community kind of undo undoes that scapegoating mechanism that you see all throughout ancient writings. And man, so this is this, a, this is an example of those of you know Shirley Jackson's presenting that ancient sort of pagan right 
right and right asking us showing us that we're not that far from it right hmm. i think it's interesting that in the the short story you have the scapegoating um mechanism but but completely absent from the story is any sort of plague or mm-hmm. i was just going to ask about uh-huh. that there, there's uh-huh. a there's an intention yeah, why do they feel the disconnect need? The, and 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 in its place in place of the plague she substitutes ancient custom yeah we just do it just because we always have the old timer who says it's not like it used to be in the old days yeah. uh, that's yeah. literally that is the reason that they're doing it now it's because they always have and and right. she's gutted even the pagan version of that transaction where the gods are angry and we appease them by sacrifice. She's gutted mm-hmm. that of any sort of one-to-one correspondence between sin and propitiation or, mm-hmm. you know, evil and good. And so there, um, she's cut the moorings out from, from um, a transaction that would make sense to any reader because there wouldn't have been nearly the pushback I'll bet if there had been some plague in town. And I think you're exactly right, Adam. Yeah. Was sacrificed, you would, they would have said, "Oh, gross! It's a story about crude paganism." Exactly, and, and I mm-hmm. think. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's what I. That's what I had. Well, and I think that it you could you could turn to it and say that that's just superstition, as opposed to you know it because then you can because then you can separate yourself from it. What she doesn't exactly. allow. She if doesn't there was allow, a plague, David. Yeah, if there was a plague, or if they were explaining, oh, there was a plague. Even if the old timers had said, we have to keep doing this. If some kid in the story had said, why do we do this, mommy? And the mommy's like, well, six thousand years ago there was a plague, and we're just not going to risk that it's not going to happen again, right? Like even something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. is you could look at that and you could say, oh, that's superstition, and it gives you an out as the reader. This does not yeah. apply to me or my kind of people. Right. Because it's right. some, you know, this is a, this is an ancient thing. It's, but it's an, it's in She's, a way. Jackson is saying something more direct about, uh, about the human nature, I think. Yeah. He's, that, yeah. That he's not regular, talking about the, the right. She's talking about the people. Yeah. The regular old men and women are the kind of creatures who would, because they'd been taught to, and for no other reason, do something this heinous. Hmm. Hey, so one of the reasons I brought up, you know, whether she's a little on the nose about stuff and, you know, how you can look at the seasons and the names and all those kind of things is because I'm curious how either of you would approach this in, in a classroom. Like how would you approach those sort of, you know, the sort of archetypes and the, the sort of, you know, the sort of elements of the things that we could look at if we really wanted to break it down. And I'm curious how, you, you know, let's just, just, let's just say you're, you're looking at it with 17-year-olds, hypothetically yeah. speaking. There's 15 of them in a group. It could Maybe it's online or it's in a classroom, whatever it is. There's 15. They're, we'll say they're all, they're all Christians. They're from your community. Um, wh- how are you going to approach this story? Both the, the sort of challenging nature of it, um, the sort of thing, the way it makes people, students squeamish, and then also sort of those on the nose metaphors and, you know, analogies that she's, she's putting there for us. Um, and that's a big question. I understand. And we're talking about literary pedagogy in general now, but I, you know, this is the kind of story that I think our instincts is to either look 
at one or the other. You either you tend to look at, okay, I've got to be able to explain this to my students. So I'm going to pull out, oh, this is what the seasons mean. Right. These are all the names mean, so I can explain it. Or I'm going to look at the squeamishness, the, the squeamish aspects of it. And we're just going to kind of wallow in them for a while. And it seems like to me, those are a little bit of opposite ends of the spectrum approaches. So I'm curious, and Adam, I'll ask you this first, how you might begin approaching a story like this. And, and I think there are some similarities between this and a lot of O'Connor's work, which we all love. Yeah, I think so too. And I, mm-hmm. I think I would always begin if I were at the head of a class by saying, um, let's see if we can't identify a protagonist in the story. I mean, since it's a story, so it partakes of a particular genre of, of art, uh, it's a story about some sort of main character that you're supposed to identify with, whether it be a single person or a group of people trying to achieve something. And you know, so it's interesting um, you mentioned that because I was thinking a lot about protagonists when I was reading it again. Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so a really good question for this story is who's the protagonist and, and what makes you think yeah. so? Yeah. And you like, could come up with, um, you know, the, the answer is not, not obvious and therefore a really good pedagogical tool, I think. Yeah. I kept thinking, wait, is there someone I'm supposed to be rooting for here? Like, is yeah, there someone, I mean, and that, that's not what a protagonist always is, but I kept asking myself that, like, who am I supposed to feel empathy towards here? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And because, by the end of the story, you, you sort of focus on Mrs. Hutchinson. Obviously. But earlier on, you don't so much. But not, not the beginning. It seems yeah. to me looking at the whole story as a, as a, as a unit that the town itself is, 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 is a person uh, trying to accomplish something through this lottery. And that may be a, a profitable uh, way to look at the structure of it. Hmm. Okay. So, so would you say, would you point that out or would you, so you'd ask that question. I'm sure you'd have a little discussion in the classroom and then let's just say you, and I don't mean to go all into like how you, this isn't meant to be a teacher's guide show, but I'm this, this, as I was reading, I got curious about this and you guys are both expert teachers. So I thought, Hey, I'm going to ask. Um, so once you've sort of started that discussion, then where do you, what's your, where does your instinct say that you'd be headed next? Well, probably something along the lines of what are the the obstacles between the protagonist and the goal he's after, and mm. and you know how do, how are those obstacles surmounted in the story? I mean, just some basic questions of structure, yeah, um, leading to uh, a question about once you you know kind of kind of have have clear what the details of the story give you on those questions. Um, what is the author trying to say about about people? Given the fact that this is that she's telling the story of this protagonist, whoever that is trying to accomplish this goal, whatever that is, over and against these obstacles, whatever they are. And then the question, does it happen? Are they successful? Is he successful? Is she successful? Why or why not? And yeah. that kind of questioning yeah. and that kind of thinking about a story like this, I think is almost always profitable, leading to yeah. an answer to the question, what is she saying about, about our society, about human nature, about what yeah. is a man? Uh-huh. You know, those kinds of questions. You know, at the I want to say it was at the conference and I want to say I was talking to Ian for those people who, listeners who do not know Ian is Adam's son and a good friend of mine. And we were talking about, um, I don't know exactly what we're talking about. We got talking about the idea of the should question that we talk about a lot here at Cersei. Oh, right. Like, should a character do something? So we got talking about how the question of, you know, you figure out who who is your, like, who what is the who is the character that is trying to accomplish something? And what are they trying to accomplish? And one of the questions that can follow on that that's kind of interesting is, well, should they be attempting to accomplish that? Because that yeah, can, right. there's a lot that, you know, that can, I mean, it takes you a slightly different yeah. direction, I suppose. But um, just because they're trying to get something 
doesn't mean that they should be. <laughs> and, well, and, and in this case, uh, if you know, if the if the protagonist is the town trying to choose someone to execute, um, Jackson is obviously answering that should question for us right in front, saying, "Look, guys, you're supposed to be uncomfortable because this is horrible. What's going on here? Yeah. They yeah. should not be doing this." <laughs> yeah, Tim, would your tact in the classroom be similar, or or I mean, this might be personality thing a little bit, but what, what, where would you start? I. I, I think a story like this, um, I, if I had time, I'd probably read it aloud to the class. And I think I would Very just ride slowly, the river. dramatically so as to use <laughs> as much of the class time as possible. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think it probably would take 15, maybe 20 minutes to read. And if it's the student's first reading of it, I mean, they're going to respond. And I think just kind of putting the raft on the river and hearing the students try to, I mean, hearing the students respond and helping them try to understand why they're responding that way, I think would be lovely. I, I would have to, I mean, I would love to teach this story. I've never taught this story, but I would have like a little bit of a theological agenda that I would probably have to, as a teacher, be aware of. Because I, I think um, you mean like you're, you'd be aware of your own theological agenda and try to avoid it being, yeah. And I think there'd too, be something that I would, yes, yes, that's right. But just to state what my theological agenda is, I, I think I come from the Protestant tradition and I think Protestants are excellent on the individuality of sin. Sin is something that individuals do, but I think that Protestants are not strong on the corporate reality of sin, like the kind of Herman Ritterboss is this reformed writer that I love. He Tim's talks dropping about, some names today. Yeah, I kind of am. I, I, <laughs> I ordinarily, resi Adam, I ordinarily resist that, but um, I just really love this story. And it, I just think it's really, it touches on a profound reality that is often neglected. Anyway, Herman Ritterboss describes both sin and redemption as supra-temporal modes of existence, which is just a big fancy way of saying to participate in the life of grace, to participate in the life of sin, is, is not just an individual volitional choice. It certainly is that, but it's also to participate in a way of being. And I think that Shirley's story, Shirley Jackson's story, kind of shows the, the protagonist or the antagonist is not a single person. You can't point to any one person as the wrongdoer. It's a corporate wrongdoer. It's the town. And why are they doing it? Not because they have any ill motives. They're not trying to, um, they don't seem to be angry with Mrs. Hutchinson. She's, they seem to recognize that she's innocent, but they are participating in this mode of existence that is, absolutely like complete darkness it's just awful do you think that there is any sign of grace in this story um any sign of the possibility of change or is that yeah. or is the lack of that part of the punch i would say the latter david uh there, yeah there's a, a couple of characters comment that you know, nearby towns have discussed the idea of getting rid of the lottery altogether 
Yeah. But the old timer squashes that kind of conversation pretty quickly. And you don't get the sense that anything like that is on the horizon for this town. And you also don't get the sense that there's any realization among the characters that such a change would be for the better. In fact, the only protest yeah. against the lottery comes from Mrs. Hutchinson who herself, who's trying to get off on a technicality. She doesn't even she doesn't even dispute that the lottery is the right way to go. She just doesn't yeah. want to be the one getting stoned. You can imagine that they mm-hmm. you know, they they ignore it so well that you can imagine they hear that every year. That this, right. the same sort right. of you know pushback. I don't get the sense in this story that there's the um there's the the breaking down of the protagonist's um, system of values, like in a Flannery O'Connor story. You know, when, when yeah. the violence comes in to to wreck the sinner's uh, assumptions, so that he can be prepared for grace. Um, you don't. I don't get that sense in in this one. Hutch, Mrs. Hutchinson just gets stoned, saying, oh, "Wait a minute, you didn't do the counting right." It isn't fair. It isn't right. Yeah. What do you guys think about? I mean, is it possible that the the grace of the story is in the kind of unmasking of this reality. Could you just say, well, it doesn't happen in the story, but the fact that the story is told is kind of a glimmer of like a parable, some sort of grace that we, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we can see it. Well, to the extent that any yeah unmasking of, of human nature um, qualifies, then yes, I would agree with that. Because I think at the bottom, this story is just basically a statement about, look, this is what kind of people human beings are. Yeah. Do you, they would do this. Do you think that there is a, um, any kind of, that it's any kind of a flaw within the story that there's not a, um, not, a, not even a moment of grace, but that the, the resolution is sort of lacking. So, I mean, we know the resolution is that she dies and they continue on. Um, but is that a flaw? Yeah, I don't think so, David. I mean, to let me just propose a very clumsy addition to the end of the story. Let's suppose that Shirley Jackson said, and that was the year that whispers began that perhaps they should discontinue the lottery. Well, the sting at the end of the tale. You just ruined it. What happened? Yeah, you just ruined it. The sting at the end of the tale is completely muted. There's no venom there. And the reader leaves the story saying, they will come to their senses. This will never happen again. But it's, to me, it's very clear that this is going to happen. It's going to happen the exact same time next year. Yeah. You know, the, the line that stood out to me the most this time was not the lines involving her dying. And I guess that's because, you know, uh, Tessie dying. I guess it's because I've read it before. But the third to the last paragraph, these two sentences are all by themselves. You know, they're set apart. The children had stones already, and someone mm. gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. They're they're passing it down. You know, it's not only is there not a resignation <laughs> towards grace, right? It's it's almost the opposite. Like right. they're reinforcing what they're right. doing. Right. Uh, the the very child, the little boy of the one who's gonna die, is being given pebbles to continue what they're doing. And right you know, to be roped into this and one day perhaps to be one of the people who is stoned. Um, unless your odds are good, like the old man graves or whatever his name is, who's been through 75 of them and never had his name drawn. Um, but the, the children's, the children were the ones making the pile of the stones. They were the ones that prepared it. They were the ones that were passing them out and they were ready to go. You know, they were on the yeah. front lines. Yeah. 
I, I think a really interesting question about this story, if you, uh, you know, once you've figured out, in, in my interpretation, this would be a statement about human nature on the part of the author. And she's trying to make it as baldly and as, and as poignantly and as, in as, in as uh, unignorable a way as she can. Mm-hmm. Once you figure out what kind of statement she's making, the question jumps into my mind, is she telling the truth about human nature? Yeah, yeah. Is she actually right about that? Yeah, right. And and I wonder if that's um, if that's one of the reasons there was such a violent reaction that the reading uh-huh. public of the New Yorker said, "You are not telling the truth. That is not actually uh-huh. what people are like. That's not what mankind is like." And that I think that question makes this story relevant. I agree. I think you're exactly right. <laughs> I had a thought, Adam. I thought this story, in a lot of ways, resembles. Um, maybe thematically, architecturally resembles The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. This town willingly goes along with a kind of, I think with with, um, The Emperor's New Clothes, it's self-deceit. I think with this story, it's deeper than just self-deceit. It goes the next step, or I don't know. It's it's more- Participating in a cultural, like a collective cultural sin. Yeah, yeah. The end of the emperor's new clothes sickness. When the when the child points out he's not wearing anything, it's so satisfying. And the story I think would be inferior if the child did not speak up. And it just feels like this wonderful relief relief someone finally has it said is. what everybody else knows. Get now, some catharsis. Yeah, but with this story I think the catharsis would actually, like we were saying earlier, be harmful to the story. It wouldn't affect us. The story would be muted in some way, softened in a way that ought, that it ought not be softened. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Um, I think back to the uh, reception of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain in the 1880s and its reception yeah. since. And he's uh, to the degree that Mark Twain's reputation's gotten pushback for Huck Finn. It always has to do with the fact that in the last part of the story, he takes back the punch and softens uh, the blow and uh, provides this this nice um, this nice resolution where everybody uh, is all right in the end and and the scales are balanced. And in the in, before that last section. Um, Twain was doing what Shirley Jackson is attempting with uh, with colors flying. He was laying into the society mm-hmm. around him, saying something much the same as what she's saying for no reason at all, just because of ancient custom. There, this the society is participating in inhuman brutality and cruelty, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, there's a parallel to the emperor's new clothes there as well. I think you're onto something, Tim. Um, somebody in that novel stands up and says, you know, he's not wearing anything. Yeah. And in this story, there is nobody like that. And I think that, um, I think again, that that's probably the reason that it has, um, it has endured in, in singularity because of that, of that lack. Uh, you wonder if it's generated so much vicious hate mail to Shirley Jackson. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. You wonder if had the emperor's, you know, the, the Hans Christian Andersen story, had, had that scenario gone on for three or four generations, whether there still would have been somebody either brave enough or observant enough to notice that he wasn't wearing anything. Because here, right. you know, this is the mm-hmm. generations are going on. They've been sort of cultivated to see things in a certain light, in a certain way. And so they don't have some, there's not someone available to them, such as a child 
to to um, point out the error of their ways. But had it, right, maybe, yeah. So maybe had the emperor, you know, had that scenario, had he been wandering around the streets naked for a little longer, and they all joined him, you know, well, mm-hmm. that would probably lead to other problems. But, um, you know, it would be, uh, it might be a different scenario there, and that might not, it might not even, you might not, there might not have been a person to to point out the obvious, right? Yeah. Brave enough to do so, or uh, right. or dumb enough. <laughs> youthful enough i guess yeah um you know one of the things david i know you have to put a bow on it pretty soon but i think part of what jackson points out though not overtly is what at the root is the reason that the town continues to stone the winner slash loser of the lottery why do they continue to do this I think a kind of flip answer would be, well, it's tradition. Okay, well, but why do people continue to do traditions, even traditions like this, that are awful? And I think there's this sense, this deep sense in us that is a both a good thing and a bad thing. In that, and by us, do you mean all? It's a sense of all human beings. We want to belong. There's this deep desire to be a part of our community, your dad and I have, have argued about this. That's a side note. It doesn't matter. Um, My dad or, Adam, deep... or Adam's dad? No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Adam's dad and I, we were on the phone the other day. No, Andrew <laughs> Kern and I, um, there's a, there's a profound and I think a good drive for us to belong to the communities that we participate in. But we've all probably been in situations where this community, whether it be a family or a civic group or a school or a church, something is going wrong and it's being tolerated. And it's the sort of thing that ought not be tolerated. And and to say, to point out that thing that is going wrong requires a tremendous amount of courage because. It never, and I'll say that as a categorical, no one ever like approaches a community and says, hey, family, dad's an alcoholic. And the family does not then turn to that person and say, hey, thanks so much for pointing that out. Right. You've opened our eyes. We finally say, that's not what happens. What happens is it removes the kind of stasis of the family. Everyone's just kind of like tolerating the situation of, you know, dad's alcoholism, as painful as it is. Um, because it's more painful to address it than it is to just tolerate it. And so the person that comes in and points it out is not greeted with a warm embrace. They're, they're, they become, in essence, the problem. And I think that's part of why I, I read the end of the story and I say, well, the lottery is going to keep going because who is going to point out what they've done? Because as soon as they point out the lottery is resulting in a haphazard, um, vile, bloody death of an innocent. The person that points that out is also going to necessarily point out, and we are guilty. And you are guilty. And that's just, and you are guilty because you picked up the stones last year and the year before and the year before. Hmm. And yes. I and I did. You know, to to get far enough to be able to acknowledge it for everybody else, you have to get 
you have to get to the point where you can admit and acknowledge it about yourself and then somehow get past that. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm the guilty one. I did it last year. I did it the year before. Yeah. I've been doing this. My whole I, life. I mean, everybody I love is guilty. Right. Of hmm. Adam mentioned the, the King Lear, this motif of blindness and seeing, I mean, I think that's, that's, I agree with Adam. It's one of the central reasons why that play is so powerful and the difficulty that Lear has in seeing himself and his own mortality and, and kind of brokenness and his own guilt is it's the sad triumph of the story. I mean, it's a very, very sad conclusion, but there's a glimmer, at least for me, Adam, there's a glimmer that, Lear has seen himself finally, oh, yeah. and he oh, can't agree. undo what he's done, but he sees himself. Yeah, in fact, in the in Act Five, um, I what I, in a in a line I'd call the climax of the play, he says, "My eyes are not the best. I tell you straight." Hmm. And this, he finally <laughs> yeah. figures it out. Oh, my problem is my own blindness. Aha! Mm-hmm. But it's too late by that time, of course. Right. So, do you think? <sighs> Now I got to read, uh, read this story, um, and look first to see if she references blindness in any, any way. That's one thing I've had. Do you think there's anything to the, like that speaks to this, to the black circle on the white paper? I was, that's what I was trying to, I was wondering if there's like, if that's a metaphor for some of the things that we're discussing here. It it's might be something as, a, as an allusion to Treasure Island. Yeah, you beat me to it. That's just the black spot. That's all that is. Wait, I don't know. I don't remember that from Treasure Island. That's the whole oh, thing really? about Treasure <laughs> Island. <laughs> Remind me, it's been a million years. I'm an old man, David. Billy Bones gets the black spot from his old mates, uh, telling him that he's been uh, court-martialed among the pirates. Oh, It's a little piece of white paper <laughs> with a black spot on it. But of course, huh. that does tie these people into the brutality of the marauding pirates, right? Um, it makes them, it, it, it ties them to sort of a, a way of life and a way of thinking about the world and a way of thinking about other people in a way that is sort of anti-cultural, right? Like pirates were sort of, the whole point of being a pirate was that you were not participating in the society and you were in fact doing everything you could to sort of undo the society for your own benefit. Um, and so it, well, I mean, that's an overstatement perhaps, but you know what I'm saying? They, they definitely yeah. were not participating properly, you know, in, in the... Well, least. if that's an allusion to, uh, to the Stevenson novel, then yeah, she'd probably be saying something along those lines. This is huh. condemning the lawlessness of the whole thing. Yeah. But you know what's interesting is, well, ironic perhaps, it's a better word than interesting. They, it, they talk about the ritual all the time, the way there's like, steps and processes and there's like a law to the ritual itself and the i mean the ritual itself is a lawless thing but it has laws to it like you have to like um what the husband the man of the house picks if there's no man of the house there's a son there's all these rules and it's like they can lose track of the 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 horribleness of what they're doing by sort of getting is caught up in a swamp of minutia, <laughs> like in the swamp of the rules. Yeah. That reinforces yeah. the custom, the age old custom yeah. that they're continuing to enact. And I, that, that emphasizes for me, what we said a few minutes ago, that it's been severed from any sort of, uh, of reason 
uh, any mm-hmm. sort of um, ill that's trying to be right, wrong, that's trying to be righted or plague that's trying to be averted. The rules themselves become their own justification over time. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty biting social critique from Jackson. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And boy, that makes me think of Eichmann in Jerusalem. I mean, so much of his justification for what he did was, what well, he was following procedures. You know? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the lottery, they're just following procedures. Yeah, there's, man, there's some things we could talk about in relation to our, our own culture right now, eh? Um, I think so. We will, is, is something springing to mind, David? Well, many things. But, I, you know, I'm just thinking in terms of, um, you know, it's even things like, uh, we, okay, so right now there's there's this controversy going on. I don't know if you're either you follow college football very closely. There's this controversy going on at Ohio state university, right? Where there's this assistant coach who, yeah. um, seems to have, um, physically abused his wife over a number of years. And the head coach seems, it, it appears that he knew about it and that he was basically mm-hmm. saying, these are the kind of things we take care of in house. So I was thinking about how you look at a lot of the, the scandals that come up in sports over the years, whether it's the Penn state scandal, you know, um, the sexual abuse scandal. Um, you, you even, you know, things that are reoccurring, you know, we're hearing about them again, um, with the scandals in the Catholic church. Um, but it's particularly true in sports. I think like when there's a, when there's a problem with an institution, the ritual is, or the tradition is you solve it in house and you, you, you take care of it yourself. Right. So this head football coach, he says, we're going to keep this in a house, we're not going to get rid of him because we can take care of it, right? And they view we, that that almost forces them to view justice in a very different way. Like it skews the way you think about um, the best way to handle. Um, yeah, and, you, and but you've always done it that way, right? Like we've always felt like we had the authority to take care of that. So we right. know that maybe this isn't like if you stop and think about it, you, you think, oh well, obviously this is this needs to be taken care of in some way that's proper, but you've always done it this way. So we just are going to keep solving it this way. We're going to keep keeping things in house and and that allows people to, you know, skirt under. I mean, that's one example of what came to mind. Um, David, it's interesting to me. I I would add to it. Like the habit is we keep it in house. I would also say that our habit is, um, we will institute new procedures because if procedures were in place, this sort of thing wouldn't happen. I'm, I'm thinking about um, the huge financial fallout of was that 2000, gosh, Eight, I'm losing nine, my mind, yeah. that 2008. Yeah. yeah that the response to the financial improprieties that caused the bubble to burst was, well, there needs to be greater regulation. And I, and I'm not arguing that like all regulations are pointless, but the problem is, if the human heart wants to find a way to skirt the system, like there, and there's gold involved, you know, we'll find a way. Now I think that like there can be procedures. It seems to me like title nine has come up in the whole thing with Ohio state. Like once you hear something, you, you mandatorily must report I think that's but a great improvement then, to the law. That's true. That's true. And we're getting way off here, but, but like, even but somebody's got to make the call. Yeah. Somebody has to decide I'm going, we've done it in our, like I still have to follow this new policy. Like you can make the new policy, but someone still has to skirt the age old tradition that you've been following in the Ohio state program for a hundred years. 
where the head coach gets the mm. final call and he solves it. So you still have to have that person who is brave enough to what you both were talking about earlier to say, what's happening here is wrong. I'm going to yeah. be the bad guy. I'm yeah. I wonder guy. whether... I wonder whether Shirley Jackson is actually suggesting that. I mean, if when you read commentaries on this story, um, one direction that they often go is the takeaway from this story is be the whistleblower. The takeaway mm. from this story is we need to think for ourselves. The takeaway from this story is here's a list of things you got to do so that this kind mm. of thing doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't get any of that from the story itself. I think the story stops short of offering a or, or even spurring readers to take a particular course of action. Yeah, I, think I agree it, with that. Instead is say, here is a, here is a snapshot of the condition. Here's a snapshot of. Here's of an human. ontological x-ray. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. think it causes like you of the thoughtful reader to say, um, to kind of ask yourself, what would I do if I was in this situation? And then hopefully, I mean, I assume most readers, your first instinct is to say, oh, I would, I would definitely, you know, not have anything to do with it. But then that causes you to think about the sort of, um, the pull that is the, the rituals that everyone's been doing forever, right? Like the, yeah, the, and I, the terror. Yeah, I of, think that's right. One of the, one of the, the questions that I think is a very legitimate takeaway from the story is what kinds of rituals is she silently alluding to? in mm. the world of 1948 or in you know, mm. modern American culture. What kinds of rituals do we participate in with no justification other than, other than history? Mm. And um, are, do they contain the seeds of, you know, cruelty and brutality in some way? I mean, that seems mm. like a, a way to think about the story that's, that's, that makes it really kind of always relevant. Hmm. Yeah. You yeah. can talk about that for, and that's where you, you know, if you're, if you're going to try to answer that question, what kind of rituals you could do some really deep line by line reading to see what she's the kinds of things that she's pointing out. Like are there specific categories of ritual? Yeah, exactly. Identify. Yeah. Is, is it a shot at religion, for example? Which, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. And I didn't, I haven't read it closely enough to, to be able to answer that question, but. You know, there's certainly various kinds of symbolism, you know, and, and even the names, like I mentioned, you know, it says at the end, Steve Adams was in front of the crowd of villagers with Mrs. Graves behind them. So I, I mean, the Adams thing, you could, you could, you could turn it that direction if you wanted to, that could be her being playful or it could be her trying to make a point or it could be random, <laughs> I suppose. Um, <laughs> the, the, of the cross thing, the Delacroix thing, meaning of the cross, that seems a little bit like I, that doesn't seem very random <laughs> to me. That doesn't seem random. No. Especially yeah. when you're talking about something related to sacrifice. Um, yeah. Hey, okay. So we should wrap this up here. I'm, what are some things that you guys, that we didn't talk about that you just need to, you'd like to say, Adam, I'll let you, like, what, what's your, what, you have a final thought that you just need to get off your chest. You're like, man, David did not get to this thing. I really wanted to talk about. No, I actually am, am um, very satisfied. I thought that was a, that was a wide ranging discussion, a full orbed treatment of the story. And I was glad to be invited along. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me today. No, of course. Tim, do you have any final thoughts? I, I think as a teacher, this is a wonderful like piece of literature to get students really activated and caring about literature. Cause I think it, there's such a powerful emotional punch at the end. And I want to say in good Circe style, because I believe it, like don't, t- 
tell the story and don't tell the students what the story means. Like maybe eventually, but let them stew in it for a while. Let them stew in it. If you do, in fact, have an opportunity to teach the story. Are you a believer in the stewing and Adam? Oh, by all means. Oh, yeah. I think one of the, one of the great uh, pleasures and, and uses to which literary art can be put is to, uh, to allow it to affect us in the, in the heart and in the soul. And I think that um, any work we do at, at understanding a story kind of um, lexically or looking at its structure or, or um, quote unquote, analyzing it has to be done in the service of allowing us to, to experience it. Uh, yeah. And with all of the emotional and psychological and spiritual punch that the author intended. The other day I was thinking about a really dumb metaphor for this. Cause you mentioned the, um, Tim, you mentioned the idea of, uh, well, I guess, did you say stewing or did I say that? I don't know. I think you said, so I was thinking about the idea of sometimes, sometimes the idea of like marinating in a book. Yeah. Thinking like maybe what we're talking about is when we talk about the lexical stuff, the things that, you know, you mentioned that are in service of that stewing, maybe those are like the various seasonings and the garlic and the things that you put the salt that you put into your marinade that they kind of enhance the six hours that you're marinating your steak before you grill it or something. So it's a really dumb metaphor, but that was where my head was that day. I must've been hungry. David, David, that's a great metaphor because I mean, I think like the point as Adam just pointed out, the point is um, the experience of the literature. And if the reader slash, if the diner is focusing just on the cumin and not focusing on the meal, I do think like the hmm. pointing out the cumin can help. But I think for me, the way that literature is best approached is at first as a whole, as an entire meal. Wow, gosh, I just really like ran that metaphor out onto dry <laughs> ground. I really just did that. <laughs> like I was well, in the boat, will, like on the deep ocean, and I just drove it straight up on a sandbar. I will say that know. there is something to the idea of balance, right? Like, well, there are, wanna... there is, and and the metaphor can't go too far because it, because eventually the, you eat uh, it. the person that can't recognize cumin still has a tongue that works. He mm-hmm. can taste whether he knows it's cumin or not. Mm-hmm. Literature is not directly analogous to food because it's communicated through language, which you can either speak or not. You either understand the words or you don't. Mm-hmm. You either understand the art form or you don't. So there has to be a balance of knowing what in the world a short story is and yeah. knowing what the genre looks like mm-hmm. and knowing how a story moves from yeah. beginning end that's right. necessary for the for the pleasure and the emotional experience so those two things i think have to be taken um at least side by side hmm. i mean i think in this example shirley jackson's story even a young reader can come to the end and assuming that the words are are, are understandable to them and say oh my goodness that's very disturbing they stoned <laughs> that lady to death right mm. right but, well, but very soon after that some sort of basic understanding of how that plot has been constructed is necessary to, to getting at what Shirley Jackson's really trying to say. Perhaps what we, where the metaphor can be more helpful isn't, is in thinking of, you know, maybe, maybe it's not so useful for the person if we're talking about the person who's eating the food, but it could be useful for the person who's trying to understand the idea of cooking. You know, maybe you don't, you learn how what you're doing is you're learning eventually how 
curcumin and salt and things work together to enhance the thing that you're trying to prepare. And so you can, you learn about, um, well, I'm trying to think of how to bring this background, what you were just saying now, Adam, um, you, in the same way that someone who is learning about how to cook, um, you, you're before you can, before you can have them go out and make like the best fillet ever, you have to teach them. I don't know if people are marinating their fillets though. Um, you have to teach them how things work <laughs> together, how, you know, how, about balance and about the way that our tongues experience thing and the, and the way that, right. Uh, the right. way that, um, the different flavors and the different, um, things work together. And in the same way, the person who is trying to understand how fiction works, um, it has to understand how all those different elements work together as well. So maybe the reader is more like the person who is learning how to cook than it is the person who's eating the meal afterwards. Uh, I, I would go with that for sure. Um, okay. One final question here and we could, we could beat that metaphor into the dry ground all for a long time. Uh, do you both think that this story deserves to be as high up on the canon of American literature as it is. Like it's one of the most anthologized, most taught, most widely read, most famous stories in American literary history. Do you think it deserves to be held that high uh, in uh, that high esteem? Tim, you mind if I go first? Please. I would say that um, because it came out in 1948 uh, at the very beginning of the Cold War in a particular historical period fraught with particular kinds of intellectual and political and social issues. And because it's short and pithy and so powerful and caused such a stir that I think it's probably um, earned its place um, beyond its, beyond its role in its own time and place. Um, I'm not so sure. And I think there are, there are probably uh greater works from other times and places that handle some of the same universal themes um, even more profoundly. So I would say that, I would say that its reputation is deserved, but at least in part because of when and where it was written. Tim, agree, disagree. You want to start a fight for the last few minutes here? I think that, um, so there are two ways in which there are two reasons why something gets anthologized. Adam just mentioned both of them just for, I think, for clarity, historical importance or kind of um, intrinsic value, like just the merits of the literature in itself. And I agree with Adam that because of its place in history before the Cold War, after World War II, I think it deserves to be anthologized. I would lean a little bit stronger toward the inherent value of the work that it sounds that like Adam does. I actually think it's, a very well told story and it might be because this issue the issue that it raises the kind of theological anthropological issue that it raises is so important to me i might be overestimating it but i still do think that its merits um ought to have been rewarded as much as it has been rewarded the uh it merits the canonization of it yeah yeah i think so um all right well that's something for people to do on as they uh as they think about this the story well thank you both for joining me uh thank you that was for great that was so fun yeah appreciate it guys that was great 
uh, don't forget to everyone who's listening uh, a couple weeks out. We're starting King Lear, Matt Bianco and Tim McIntosh. And then we will be starting next week. We'll be starting discussing Wallace Stegner's crossing to safety. Hey, Adam, have you ever read crossing to safety? I have not. You got to read that book, man. You would love Adam. It. David uh, thinks that it's one of the most underrated uh, American novels of the 20th century. I have said wow. that. I have gone on the record of saying that. Although Adam and I have disagreements on various kinds of literature, various particular books anyway, that we need to work on. But no out acrimonious ones. ones though. No, of course not. <laughs> you just think much more highly of the book that I don't not I'm not I don't publicly name. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, hold on, just throw my lot the in there. Book, wait, wait, wait. Do you mean the book that shall not be named? <laughs> that's, that's what I call it. Adam, I'm with you on that one, brother. Oh, I love that book. It, it might be nice to never name it. And like that is we would kind of be following Shirley Jackson's lead by not putting a little, you know, happy conclusion by not naming the book that shall not be named. Uh, our readers will be wanting more. I've gotten so much mileage out of that phrase, the book that shall not be named. Do You, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm not going to say it, but you, but you say, yes, or no, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Um, yeah, but all the listeners probably know because every now and then I just drop into the Facebook group and remind them that I don't think it's very good. Uh, <laughs> at this point breaking. though, I've got to admit that at this point though, I'm feeling a little bit like maybe it's just a performance that I have to keep up because it's an old ritual. So maybe I should take something from this. Story. Have we learned nothing from the lottery, change. David? Yeah. Not a thing. <laughs> All right, I'll give it a second chance or a fifth chance or whatever it is that I'm on now. Um, no, I'm perfectly willing to admit to the two of you that the book that shall not be named, my disregard for it has much more to do probably with taste than actual merit. So I'm willing, yeah. to, I'm willing to admit that. Um, but that also means we're never doing it on the show. Uh, so anyway, with that um, combative ending, I think we should end the show. And uh, I will say <laughs> thank you to you both. Thank you to Tim McIntosh and to Adam Andrews for joining me here on Close Reads. I'm David Kern, and we'll talk to you next week. Happy reading. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.